Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. Hey everyone, this is LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. I am extra excited to have my guest with me today. She is a mental health advocate and owner of Be The Light Clinical Supervision and Consulting. I have Raquel E. DeBose. Hey, Raquel. Hey, girl. Hey. (laughs) All right. I'm so excited. I'm excited excited too. I'm excited for the listeners to get just, just a bit of of all this great conversation so I'm gonna start with you like I do all my guests and ask what is your labor of love what a loaded question um I feel like my labor of love what I feel like I I pour into what my passion is what I feel like I want my legacy to be um is wellness but black wellness ultimately all things black people black exposure Black community, just anything that has to do with Black people and our ability to connect with each other and also love ourselves so that we can love each other too. So of course, wellness overall, but I don't want to, you know, all lives matter this, Um, but definitely Black people, (laughs) labor of love. Black people are my labor of love. I, I, I go up for us. I want us to do well. Yes. That's my labor of love for sure. I love it. Thank you. So can you start by sharing with us, like, where is that rooted? When you think back to maybe a moment, a time, or an incident, whatever it was that helped you realize this is where you wanted to pour your gifts, your talents, and your time, what would you say that was? I think going to a predominantly white institution for undergraduate school and graduate school, um, because there weren't a lot of avenues for me to feel comfortable asking certain questions or feeling like I could connect with people. I mean, there it, it was a diverse as far as like classes and classmates and that sort of thing. But when I think about um, like teachers, professors, um, when I think about, you know, especially getting into the mental health field, like supervision and those sorts of things, I didn't really have a whole lot of folks that were willing to connect with me in that way. Um, and they also couldn't because most of them were white and white women. So that really, uh, took it down a notch for me, as far as experience, they, I had, when I say I had great clinical supervision, amazing clinical supervision, my clinical supervisors were so dope. They had great insight, but that little piece was missing for me. Just that piece of, there are certain things I feel like I can't talk about in supervision. There are certain things I feel like I can't talk about in class because folks won't get it. So I think that that kind of started, like, I want to create a space where folks can have that opportunity. That That's dope. And when I hear you talking about it, some things that were coming up for me is like, there is this like asterisk. We have had good experiences with some of the people, like our some of the educators we've been around, supervisors and coworkers we've had. But when you talk about that little piece, right, that ability to be able to be your full authentic self without having to explain your full authentic self is what is how I is how it you know is is the experience that I had. And Absolutely. when I think about the limited um, reflections of myself and my experience throughout the college experience and the the postgraduate experience and the work experience it's real out here you know and sometimes I don't know that people truly understand how disproportionate things are in the mental health field right and so then when we start talking about stigma and why a lot of black and african-american people don't seek mental health services, often it's times it's because the, the system itself does not reflect 
our identity and our experience in so many ways. And so when you decided to do something about this, what does that look like? So your empowerment, tell us how that shows up in your day-to-day life. What do you do? Well, I, I think it just shows up in the things that I am, the things that I'm passionate about, like I said, but also just the way in which I kind of go up for the people that I love, which is Black people. So I go up for us. When I think about articles or I think about organizations or I think about events and all of these things, I want to provide access to folks who I know wouldn't typically have access to those things. I want to create a space that I didn't have, right? I know, you know, we talk about in therapy as therapists, we talk about people operating in lack, right? So we navigate our lives through the things that we didn't have, um, which can be okay. Like that's a good place to start, but we don't want to continue to operate in that. We want to be operating in abundance and operating in in the field of, you know, we can do anything we want to do and all those sorts of things. But I think day to day for me, I'm cognizant. I try to be mindful of the ways in which I'm interacting with people. I don't code switch. I'm authentic. I'm genuine. I'm from Evanston. Y'all gonna get all of this Evanston. I'm not gonna cuss as much as I would when I'm with my family or friends, but if I, when I'm in professional settings, when I'm in meetings, y'all, y'all gonna get y'all in the, in the meeting. Y'all gonna get, I don't know about that in the meeting because I can be both. I can be professional and still be my true and authentic self. And that's something that I know that I was definitely taught. I was raised with my grandma and my grandpa. And so they were very much like coming from a situation where they like literally life or death, if you didn't act a certain way. Right. And so generational passing that down, you have to talk a certain way when you go to work. You got to, you know, be a certain way so you don't get fired. You already got targeting, you know, you know, all those things. And so the way that I do this, my passion day to day is being my true and authentic self at all times, for sure. That's so real. So if anybody has listened to, I don't know, even one other episode, I feel like I'm talking about authenticity all the time, but from a space of me having to still in the process of building and nurturing that for myself. So you said so many great things. One, I love that you highlighted life or death. We get passed down epigenetically and through culture and through our rearing that we have to present and perform a certain way because historically it literally meant life or death. It's it's not about making friends. It's not about keeping friends. It's about if you don't do this, then your livelihood will be taken away. Your life may be taken away. So being able for me personally to hold the compassion, the grace, and the empathy for all of the ancestors that have passed down this intuitive knowing, like I can hold that while simultaneously saying, when we show up authentically, we are literally opening a door for some people who don't even know that's a thing. Mm-hmm. whether it's this yeah. podcast standing in front of somebody doing a a, a training or on a, a panel whatever it is I recognize that what my hair looks like the clothes I choose to wear and how I use my language is literally sometimes helping people understand like oh that that felt real like I didn't have to interpret what she was saying like she she said it like she would say it. And that is a super, super huge thing. So I love that. I want to talk about a couple of things. One, I would love to spend a little bit of time talking about your work in forensics, because I just feel like, and it's not even something we have talked a lot about, but the few times we have, and just like a few posts that you make, I am so intrigued for people to hear why it is so important for you as a Black woman to have worked in the forensic side. So first tell folks who might not even know what that means when I say that, what that means, what you did, and how this labor of love came through in that. For sure. Um, What I still do, because I still contract with um, Okay. so I'm still doing that. So forensic evaluation. So forensics. So typically when people think forensic, they think like CSI, which is part of it, but forensic means anything criminal justice related ultimately. So for me as a forensic evaluator, I work with people who are court involved. So either on probation, pending charges, they're either in jail, out on bond, on or bond, those sorts of things. So every person that I work with on that side of things is court involved. I think the way that my labor of love shows up for my, for me in that job is because I'm able to be my true and authentic self because unfortunately, and we know this, there's a, 
uh, over representation of black people, uh, mass incarceration and all the systemic things that come with that. So a lot of the folks I see look like me. And so the challenges of that is there's a couple of things. The first challenge is that people think that we're the same, even though we intersect in a lot of ways, some things I don't get, right? So people say, oh, I mean, you know how it is when you, you know, you start slanging and it, it, it. I'm like, ooh, I don't, but I hear you. I still validate you. So I don't have to know exactly what you're going through in order to still understand and feel like you're valid in your experience, right? The other, the other piece of that is, so like just the, the kind of, also kind of the, you know, being a little overly familiar right? It's like, oh, you like my cousin? Cool. Then we get away from, I'm here to help you. And so you might be telling me things that you probably shouldn't be telling me, or you're telling me things, or you're not telling me things because there's some sort of like, you look like my mom or my auntie or my cousin. So I can't be authentic with you. Like sometimes it goes the reverse way, right? More often than not, it doesn't happen like that. I go get folks from the lobby and say, okay, I'm Raquel. I'm going to be working with you today. And they're like, what? Oh, for real? Oh, okay. And I can see like physically their shoulders relax. They're like, oh, okay, cool. Because I know that their experience thus far has been primarily white people, the judges, the prosecutor, the defense attorney, the bailiff, like every person at the court involved more often than not, even though there are black judges in there, a lot of them are great. Um, majority of it, they, they see court equals white people equals y'all not for me ultimately. And so people typically get into a session with me and are more relaxed, which I am grateful for. And, and I validate. And I'm like, you know, people say, you know, I don't like therapy. I don't want to have a therapist. I'm like, I'm a therapist. Nah, but you did. This is therapy. This is what we do. We just talking. <laughs> like we, we just talking. Um, and so even being able to hopefully only see a person one time, which doesn't always happen, but even being able to see a person one time and, and change their view about mental health treatment in that moment is powerful for me. Um, and so me being able to be authentic and real and genuine, the, the feedback that I get is a lot of times is number one, I wish you were my therapist. I'm like, nope, can't, can't do that. And the second thing is I would not have talked like this if I weren't talking to you. Right. And so I think that because ultimately the purpose of this is for me to provide the court with recommendations for treatment, give them a background of the person who they are outside of their charges. And so the more authentic, the more transparent, the, the more honest you are with me, the more I can tell the court and hopefully it'll allow them to look at this person in a different way. So I take that very seriously. Like I don't, I try not to BS the people. I talk to people how I talk to y'all, my friend, like I talk, like I'm not going to be condescending. I'm not going to use all this jargon. And like, you know, I'm going to come at you in a way that you can understand because you deserve that. You're already in a situation where you don't control most of what's happening. And here, let's just talk. What's going on? How we get here? I've had the conversation before at the end of the day. Okay, before we go, how we get here? Like for real, what happened? What could have changed, right? What, and a lot of times it's, I was 12, 13, I started XYZ ABC. And so how do we get in that 10 to 13 age range for kids before it goes all the way left, right? And so even being able to understand all the nuances of, of poverty and the intersections of, you know, community violence and all these things that, uh, that impact people's decision-making and how they come to me, because I tell everybody, it was good to meet you, don't come back. Cause that means you're back in trouble. <laughs> like, don't, let's not do this again. You see me at Kroger, Chuck the Deuce, that's it. But this, right, what we're doing right here through the glass at the jail, which is so, draining for me I do go into the jail to do assessments for people who are locked up that's a whole different vibe mm -hmm. it's very like heavy I feel heavy my soul feels heavy and I have worked with so many people who are like when I get out of here I really want to try to do something different I'm like yeah the one person I saw I had seen him before and as soon as he saw me he just started crying Miss Raquel man I didn't want you to have to see me like this again I'm like I feel you I didn't want to see you like this again either but let's talk about how we get back in here Right. So I think that my ability to be authentic and genuine helps me to be able to connect with people, help them, help them to be authentic and genuine and transparent in the things that they need. And then I, in turn, can, you know, make that all make sense when it goes to the court. So, I mean, I could end the podcast now. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, no, that was, that was so, yeah, Raquel, so many things. Um, I, I appreciate that. I remember, um, because we work together. History, uh, Raquel and I worked together in community mental health. We did different things. I was not even a therapist at the time. 
Um, but we worked together. And when you left, you went into the forensics. Um, was that directly after that? No, I went to Humana for like a hot second. Okay. Anyway, 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 okay. A little, a little, a little hurdle. Anyway, I came on back around. It wasn't, it didn't really feed my clinical soul like I thought it would. And so here we okay. go. We're back. Well, the next time we did connect after that, you were doing this and I was so intrigued and that's it. Like, I think sometimes people think in order to destigmatize the therapeutic process, there are all these things and promotion, just be real. Them being able to see you, an authentic you, not avert, and this is not a criticism because when I say this next statement, I'm thinking about me in the way I used to be and I'm working out of, but it's different for them to come in and see you, your authentic Evanston raised (laughs) self versus I think how I used to show up in the world, which is I have this job and I have to be professional and professionals in quotes. And it meant a certain thing. It meant I wore a certain Mm -hmm. thing. It meant my hair looked a certain way. It meant I talked a certain way. It meant all the code switching that I had to do and show up to, in my mind, validate to the system that I deserve to be here. And so when I then came in contact with, let's say, other Black people, they didn't necessarily see me as another Black person. They saw me as another brown-skinned person in the system, the same Mm -hmm. system that has been mischaracterizing them, judging them, and all of these different things. And so as I began to realize, it, one, just be me and be authentic and how other people can connect with me with that, but it's also not the full, it's not my responsibility to do this, but when we do show up authentically, we start to create dissonance for the system itself because Mm -hmm. the system itself says, well, this is what professionalism looks like. And we come in and they like, this is not how I'm used to it looking, but man, she really good at what she do. I mean, the facts are the facts. Okay. I'm going to come in here with my exit five and talk my stuff and whatever, whatever. But at the end of the day, my work is done. Okay. I can still do this and still be myself like it doesn't I feel like we've been taught that it has to be one or the other right Mm -hmm. like we can't if either you're uh, your authentic self and you can't get ahead like you want to or you are you know presenting yourself in this like this interview sort of way um and that's how you get ahead but I also acknowledge and some people might be like well I don't have the privilege to have that particular experience which is real right so you know at this phase of life at 38 okay I'm done with that 25, 22, 19 year old Raquel coming from straight out of undergrad and all these things. I didn't have, I didn't feel like I had the privilege to really be my authentic self because bills are due. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get fired. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't just like, of course. And also, like you said, professionalism doesn't necessarily equal white proximity. Right. So I think that there, that's a misconception, but that's systemic though. Right. Like you, yeah. if you act like this, this means you get ahead and these are things that you have to do in order for you to open, get into these doors. You have to act this certain way. And I don't think that's true, but I understand that for a lot of people, it is. Absolutely. That's just real. I join you there. And that's where yeah. I'm saying, like, I want to exactly that acknowledge this ain't the thing, you know, everyone won't feel like that, but I feel like this is why we kicking the doors off the hinges. Right right? Not opening it for ourselves. And then it's closing behind us, but kicking it down to say, no, you don't have to. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, and part of that is in, in essence, why in most ways we work for ourselves, right? Because who gonna say something, right? And the main thing is my boss is amazing. She real, just like me, I'm my boss, right? And so we, we get to write the story differently than people who and we have we have been under those same systems right but I, I think that's important that you know we are not the only two by far but we are two people out here who are saying we are going to demonstrate that these things can be different we are going to demonstrate that you can show up in this very very authentic way um and you know I have this shirt I I really wish I knew where I got it from because you know people be ripping off shirts and it was a black owned yeah, company but it was um be you they'll adjust that's it. And when I tell you, they adjust. They, and no, it's they not my responsibility. <laughs> What'd you say? I said, the, they literally will. Like, they, or they won't. Or they won't. And that's not for you. And it's not my responsibility to um, really care about the comfort or discomfort they have in adjusting to how I am showing up. Correct. But that's it. And so I love the work 
that you do in the forensic side of things because the system is unrelenting. And when you say you can visibly see shoulders dropping and people's mm-hmm. facial expressions changing and all the ways in which they're like oh you who I'm going to talk to no like surprise like oh you I thought I thought we was going to talk to somebody else to come in no it's just me not just me but it's me mm-hmm. we're here to talk let's talk like I think people come into it with a different idea because you know you work with your attorney they present a certain way you go in front of the judge they present a certain way like I'm just in here to talk to you about whatever it is you got going on and how we got here and what can help you not come back here ultimately. And I I will be real, like my involvement in in legal systems, um, even when I'm not quote unquote in trouble, is I feel the impact on my body. I go into a courtroom and again, it maybe it's not I'm not in trouble for whatever reason. I step onto the floor where I know the courtroom is and my body automatically starts to tense up and constrict in a way that that's historical that's that that stuff is rising up and I'm like oh okay I'm noticing I'm taking my deep breaths then you go into the courtroom some about sitting at that little table and having this person on the other side you know just whatever questions it feel all the things all the things yep. and that's exactly. when I'm not here to defend anything I've done so imagine if I have to go in there and I have to in some way tell someone the things I've done and try to get them to understand it when the system itself has just written it off as you you've made a bad choice so it it, the system is choosing to look at the individual and saying look at what you have done and paying no attention to all the systemic barriers and things that are around that led to all the lifestyle choices that were made so yes as you talked about that just being able to know that like you operate in even just one very small part of that system um, brings me so much comfort for the people who get to sit with you. Okay, so we're getting misty already. Yes. Uh, yeah, um, listen, yeah. I, we are pretty good into this, so I'm just saying, I think I did <laughs> we're getting misty good. already. Um, I agree. I'm doing pretty well myself. Um, yeah, I mean, for sure. I think that, like, again, it's not a responsibility, even though you know responsibility is you know relative, but I, it's not some. It's not a job, a position. It's not something I take lightly. It's not something that I go into like, oh, I'm going to go in here and just look, look. like I. Every person I see. Um, I, I take that seriously. I take it into, okay, I'm here to tell your story in a way that makes sense for the court. And then at the end of it, make some recommendations. Of course, I don't, I don't have that much clout. So the judge can say, no, nah, we good. I'm cool on that. Uh, but they might say, okay. And some, a lot of times they do. Um, and so my job is to, I, I need to know everything. And so creating a safe space for you to feel like you can tell me those things. Like, like I said, I've had so many folks say, Mm, I, I had a, a person I called their mom like we do collateral information and the mom was like were you who she met with last week I'm like I am she was like she just came home and she had tears in her eyes and she was like if I I would I would go to therapy if my therapist was like her and she left your office and had hope and that was like that's all I need yeah to keep going like that's mm-hmm. all I need in this field to keep going Mary Vicario my fave told me at a training long ago that if Helping one person isn't enough. This ain't the job for you. Come on. She told us that. Mm-hmm. Now, I wish I could tell y'all what episode, but y'all got to go all the way back to season one <laughs> in the beginning. It's the episode with Mary Carrie on there. My yes. mentor. So. The, the GOAT, okay? The GOAT <laughs> of trauma-informed care. Like she, like that stuck with me. And, and that was, you know, I was working at St. Joe's. That was 10 years ago, maybe eight. Stuck with me. If one, if helping one person is enough, this isn't for you. This job is thankless. This is you're going to be stressed out. You're going to carry a lot of stuff with you. You have to take care of yourself, like all of that. And I went to another training with her, which was she was reading the people for Phil, which I am here for always. Um, it was about what was it about? No, I don't forgot. But she, she know Mary here years ago. Yes. I hope she hears this. <laughs> I, I hope she does too. I She's will make sure that I, I get her that snippet. Yeah. So, but that's, re- that's, that's important for me as far as like just in mental health in general, like it has to be, it, it, if it has to be enough to keep you going for sure. It does. I love that. So now let's transition a little bit and talk about supervision. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you provide supervision. So for those who are not necessarily familiar with the field, what happens is you go through school um, that's why I need some people to put some respect on the process, right? Could you it's not please? just people who, oh, like talking or like giving advice, like that ain't it. You go through school and then you get there and you can finish school, but that don't mean you can 
do therapy. You okay. have to take a national exam and you get licensed. And throughout that licensure period, you're conditionally, well, not conditionally, but throughout the, you're licensed, but you still have to have supervision if you want to be independently licensed, which essentially means that you can do, you can give a diagnosis without supervision and do things like that. And then beyond that, you have to keep going if you want to be able to supervise other people with licenses. So Raquel has gone through that process and she has her supervisor designation. I want you to just talk to us a little bit about how your labor of love comes into place when you're providing supervision for other therapists. I think it goes back to that um, authenticity, right? I think that's just like the buzzword for this episode, other than self-care, of course, and labor of love. But I think that, so, because again, I had great supervision. My supervisors um, were so, so great, like great clinical backgrounds, have so much to say, so much to teach me. I learned so much. And those experiences led me to want to be in supervision and to provide that to someone else. But again, that little piece, that little that little layer was missing. They were all white women, amazing white women, but no, I didn't have any black supervisors. Um, and so I wanted to be that for the beginning supervisor that I was, right? So having all the clinical expertise and being able to, you know, kind of go through all those things, but also having that additional piece of, yeah, it's hard to have to not be yourself sometimes because of the expectation. It's hard to navigate in systems that are you know primarily led by people who don't look like us but making a lot of decisions for people who look like us kids adults you know outpatient inpatient all these things like it's it can just be really uh, taxing um, and draining and stressful and so being able to have all of those pieces in addition to the I know what it's like to have these other experiences as well um, and feeling like your voice isn't being heard and feeling like you can't speak up for certain things, like that was super important to me. So that always shows up for me in supervision. Um, I have one um, supervisee who's amazing. Um, she's not black, but she's amazing. I mean, I'm saying, but like, that's a deficit. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, but she's she's amazing. But I, ha I do have a black supervisee as well. And even our supervision topics, well, I have two there. So I'm all together. But even though our supervision topics are the same, as far as what we talk about, we talk about diagnosis, we talk about ethics, talk about all those things there is a certain level of things that I can teach the white supervisee as far as when she's working, because she works in forensic as well, when we're working with those the, in that population and what that can look like so that you are not like some of these other uh, providers who have not created a safe space for folks who don't look like us. Um, and then also with the ones who identify as Black or African-American, we can have those conversations about all the things plus you know, some of these white women tears be really frustrated or, you know, we can have these conversations and be authentic and be real about it because that's like, this isn't like, I don't sugarcoat any of that. Like that's like, I had a, my, one of my supervisors was like, I feel like, I don't know if it's me, but I feel like I'm kind of being left out. And I don't, I know I'm the only black, super, black provider here. And I don't, I don't want to, so, you know, all these things that we kind of second guess ourselves when we have like gut feelings about things and being able to come to me and I say, it could be true. I'm validating that that could be the case. They could really just be implicit or not. This really could be the situation and being validated in that, like, I'm not crazy. I'm not making stuff up. I'm not looking for quote unquote trouble or whatever that looks like, like being able to be valid in those feelings, whether it's true or not, we can still talk about it and process it as well. So definitely shows up for me in supervision because I want to present myself in a way as a supervisor that I had as far as clinical skills and the supervisor that I needed as far as um, authenticity for sure. I love it. I think another benefit that I'm sure you recognize, but didn't state is when I think about the supervision that I've gone through, um, supervision and just consultation and collaboration. Mm -hmm. I find that before we can even get to the clinical stuff, I spend so much time having to explain the black experience of the client or family I'm working with just right. to bring people up to speed for them to possibly maybe give me an accurate, explanation that falls into the clinical side and right. so I, I state the things as they are and I already see people making conclusions based on their lived experience and I got to be like okay wait 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 let me explain so Back while that is the thing mm -hmm. that happened let me explain what that typically looks like and and sometimes just having to explain I I want people to think about like if this is not your general experience or aka if you're not navigating the world in black or brown skin imagine taking a 48 hour period 
And anytime you talked to someone, you had to narrate your current life, your immediate history, and your long-term history in order to just have a conversation about what you're talking about right now. Like, just think about that. Like you go up to a person and you're having a quick conversation, but before you can have that conversation, you have to explain what you did this morning, what you did yesterday and two years ago, like that would be exhausting. And if you can't imagine going through a 48 hour period and that being the, the process you would have to go through, that is the experience for most of us who are navigating professional settings. We, we show up in the present but we have to narrate all these experiences we've had to help a person who hasn't had those same experiences understand how we got there today. I want to give just like a, a quick example. It can be very benign. Like, um, so I like floating. We'll get to self-care in a minute. I went floating last night. I had my float. It was amazing. Uh, freaking amazing. And I also have another friend who loves to go floating. And when we talk about floating, our, our experience in the float tank are very similar. We can talk about that, but we don't, what she doesn't have an understanding, she's a white woman, is the process after my hair. See, no, it, it's not the same because floating for you, we both had a 60 minute float. <laughs> And we both enjoyed that as part of our self-care. And then you got to wash your hair while you were in the room and then you go on about your life. And I'm like, yes, I had to get the immediate soap out, but then I had to go home and engage in wash day. All the things. Day. D-A-Y. <laughs> I wash my Not hair. a moment. Wash day. A complete process, routine, all the things. Yes. So that, so my enjoyment of floating, a 60 minute float, that we equally enjoy and can process the benefits of, that process doesn't start and stop with me just going in the tank. And so when we're talking about it, oh, you should go more often. You said you like it. I do. Mm -hmm. And wash day. <laughs> right. So, the process so afterward. I can't do that every day. have to look at the whole that, yes. right? Now, when I'm yes. talking to another Black woman who goes floating, it, it's understood, we like, I like, but who going to do this more than once a month? Cause I wish I could do this every day. I want to do it every day. They have a <laughs> two week package where you can come as right. much as you want. And right. I would love to take advantage of that, but who, how I, that, it doesn't and when you, fit. and when you say, but you know, she knows, she knows. And we look at each other. Right. And so that's be. just an example of this is not an attempt to say that we can't relate. And when people go, it's no, 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 no. There are factors that come mm -hmm. into it, but having to explain that after a while, it just gets tiresome, right? For so sure. sometimes we just don't explain. We like, okay, it's fine. It, it's, you don't, it's fine. You don't need to, that's fine. But when you are able to come to a supervisor who has an understanding of the things you've had to navigate to do the, the same things that other people are doing, simply that that is so helpful when you're collaborating and you have the clinical inquiry right another example is when you're like working with families I work with families all the time and you have a child who let's say you have two children you have uh, a black family and a white family and they have presenting issues that look similar and you might be with a supervisor or someone collaborating saying, man, we don't want to do this, but we the parents might need to call the police on the child. Like their behaviors are so, you know, unmanageable right now. You know, the parents might have to call the police. And I, I get that answer. But when you then think about what might result if that is called, that's a whole different thing. And being able to be with a supervisor now, it's not just a black supervisor who can do this, but it takes a lot of work and intentional extra work for non-black and non-marginalized supervisors to go, wait a minute, what are the nuances in what my supervisee is bringing? Because it's so deep, it got to the point where I didn't change my email and my voicemail. I do not say if this is an emergency, call 911. I say if this is an emergency, visit your local emergency room or call a crisis hotline. I had to remove call 911 for my own ethical reasonings and safety because mm -hmm. of the relationship between Black people and law enforcement. And I'm saying all that to say, 
when we are having this discussion, because I think I'm thinking about a lot of my listeners, a lot of whom are not Black, which I love. And if you feel like maybe uh, this episode is absolutely for you. I want you to listen to this one. Don't skip it because you feel like you can't relate. I want you to listen because you might can't relate. So that you start to recognize there are things that you didn't even know you needed to relate to when you are engaging with people and having a supervisor who can understand that and help other people to understand that. I think it's like super huge. So there's the forensic work, there's supervision, and then there's therapy. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about therapy. Therapy. So, I mean, I... My clients are so funny. They're amazing. Just throwing that out there because you, you, the, they've made a decision to do the work and try to be in a different place than they were before we started. So I'll say that. But I think that because I am how I am in session, folks are able to really show up as themselves, which is helpful for them to even be able to get to the point where they want to do the work in the first place, right? So because therapy can really be intimidating, it's like, okay, I'm gonna tell this person all my business. She don't know me. I don't know her. She's not going to understand. She's not going to, you know, really, really get it. She's not really going to. And, you know, and I tell folks, it's not really my job to get it in that way. My job is to help you get it. Like my job is to lead you as best as I can, so that you can start seeing things in a different way. I always describe therapy as puzzle. You dump a bunch of a thousand piece puzzle on the table, you start putting pieces together. That's it. Sometimes it's not going to feel good. You're going to hate my guts. I'm going to call you out on stuff. You're not going to want to talk to me. You can be like, oh, this week, it's a week already. Here we go. Like, and that's okay. I, I can take that. I'm not easily offended. You know, I've worked with so many different populations. I've been hit by kids. I've been cussed out by kids, and don't that that don't phase me in this in this moment because your healing is that important. Um, and so I think that being authentic and genuine in sessions in therapy sessions is so so valuable because it's already weird, and I just validate that as weird. I'm a stranger. You don't know me. You about to tell me all your business? I'm gonna know. I, we gonna, I'm gonna see you in Kroger or Walmart or a Target. He's like, oh, I got my therapist. She know all my business. Like it's weird. I validate that it's weird. Um, but I also encourage folks to go through the process. It's hard, but it's worth it. I have a therapist. My therapist is dope. And she is, she is amazing. I've had her for many years, kind of off and on. And she's so sweet and just very like, she's like a hippie. She wear handmade jewelry. She wear Birkenstocks. She real like low key. And she's just like real, just, okay, Raquel, really a soft voice. But she'd be calling me out on my shit. And I love it. I mean, like, okay, now, wait a minute. You, I, I heard you say, now, last time you we went through this, you said X, Y, Z, A, B, C. I'm like, what? I be want to cuss at her, but I don't because, you know, respect. But sometimes I want to I want to call her a bitch. I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm like, you ain't have to read me like that. That's what I'm saying. So having that, the power, the power in therapy is so profound. Um, I had a client tell me last week that, um, you know, she was like, you know, I know we we're talking about being intentional. Um, and I was, I was about to do something and I heard your voice in my mind saying, be intentional. I was like, I'm your inside voice. What? Like, that is crazy to me. Therapy is so powerful when you are all in with it. I mean, caveat, you got to be all in. It's true. And I also, along with that fact, whether people recognize it or not, so many people go into the therapy space trying to please their therapist. Ooh, like oh oh no it, it it's very aligned with when you hear a person be like oh so like they brush their teeth once a day okay mm-hmm. and then they know they got a, do- a dentist appointment coming oh, up at the end of the hard. week and they're like oh I gotta start <laughs> flossing I gotta start brushing I at night I'm brushing two times every meal after every yes because I don't right? want it's like people who clean their house before the makeup like it, that it's the people who like, oh, shoot, I got a doctor's appointment at the end of the week and I know they're going to check my blood pressure. So I need to start eating healthy. It's right. Like, I, I take my meds. <laughs> I got to take my meds. I'm We're coming up into a, a point where I have to check in with someone who has perceived authority. Right. And I, and I was, I said I was going to, or they suggested or told me I needed to do right. this thing. So right. now in advance of going to see them, I need to get right. And people do the same thing with our, with therapy. And For so sure. they come into the space with a perception of authority and hierarchy. And uh, what I believe a good therapist does is, is they try to disrupt that, that paradigm. But even when we try to do a good job and to do that, people still are like, Oh, my therapist. So when we can show up authentically and, and point that out, that, that is freedom. 
when a person not only realizes that they can be them their authentic selves, but they're not being judged for it. It Absolutely. is that's the number one thing that what, I hear when folks are like, I don't want to go to therapy, I don't want to be judged. I'm like that's your therapist shouldn't be judging you, or you shouldn't feel like they are. And if they and if you feel like that, then that's a perceptual issue. And we can talk about that in therapy. Absolutely, right? And and so I, I just love so much of it because we have the opportunity, you and I and so many other people, no matter what race we identify as, to create safety for people to come. When I talk with a lot of white clinicians, one of the questions I roundabout get asked is how, what about that safety, right? And part of it is let's talk about the things you are uncomfortable talking about, right? When a person who identifies has any kind of marginalized identity, whether it's their race, their sexual uh, orientation, their gender identity, uh, whatever that thing is. And we just like, well, we're not going to talk about this. I start whether I share the identity with the person or not. One of my open things is I want to talk about all the things that make you, you. And this is a space for us to discuss any of the things that are challenging as you navigate life. So if your gender presents challenges, know this is a place to talk about it. If your race presents challenges or the system creates challenges based on your gender, your race, your sexual orientation, all those things, your height, your weight, I explicitly want people to know this is a place where we can unpack all of that. And one way is when you can be authentic and show up as yourself there is just something that a person can see like, oh, you're not hiding parts from me. So maybe it's okay for me not to hide parts from you. And that doesn't mean boundary violations. I am high on self-disclosure in ways that are meaningful for that person. It's for them. I have my own therapist to do my own work with. Yes. But so important. People can recognize, you know, what I say is that I hold a mirror up. I want people to see themselves. And so when they leave a session, I want them to remember seeing themselves, not even me. I'm just back here holding the mirror. So you mm-hmm. can see what I see, what's happening, what's actually there. And so I think that's important when you show up authentically, you don't necessarily have to have the same identities as the yeah. person you're working with, but are you in touch with your own identity? So last thing around this is when you show up authentically, you got to know what authentic is. It's right? relative, right? It's all of it is relative. People's trauma is relative. People's experiences are relative to them. The client is always the expert. Like, you know, your life, you know how you're navigating, but then also, like you just said, we have to come into it also knowing who we are so that that doesn't get like it doesn't get fuzzy in the session or with boundaries or with ethics or all these things. When you show up as yourself, you have to step one, know who you are mm-hmm. and know and what that, that means for you. And that allows you, I just kind of, there have been a few times in my, in my therapy career where people have assigned maybe intent or something to me that before I was really solid in who I was, I would walk away from that. Like, Oh God, did I, was that it? Now mm-hmm. I'm just kind of like, let's talk. I, I, I impact whoever I'm in a space with. Let's talk about the impact, but let's give an example. Um, I remember I, I had a, um, a client eventually disclose that like I had sent them into a deep shame spiral by something oh, wow. that I had done. And that, that, that hurt so bad because I'm anti-shame. Like I want to take the shame away and, and all of those things. And as, as I was able to listen to kind of what, where, where they felt that it was helpful to go, oh, in that moment, I acknowledged that they experienced hurt. Right. And I'm not going to change how I do therapy because I recognize why I did that thing that I did while simultaneously understanding how the combination of how I am in therapy and where they were created that moment of harm. So let's explore that. When we are unsure of who we are, we go, oh God, internalize it. And then that's too much. So I just, I can't do that again. And I'm saying that's not necessarily always the case, but that's why supervision Mm -hmm. is important. 
because you don't have to then internalize that and figure it all out. You now have a person you can go to who understands you and your, and the way that you show up in the world and you can process that with them. So there are so many helpful things about, um, being able to get clarity with someone who can help you navigate this thing while helping you identify who you really are. And I, that's what that's what supervision is for. And so I'm so grateful that you sit in all these roles. So before we talk about self-care, um, I did want to just talk about this notion of um, I would never. That's what I'm gonna call it. I would never. And y'all can't see her. She's chuckling a little bit. <laughs> because um, I know where this is going. Go ahead. And I, I just think you're the perfect person to talk about this. I think as we go through life in general, we have these ideas of I would never. I'll share one of my I would nevers. When, um, when I worked at the community mental health um, organization that Raquel and I worked at together, I didn't have an understanding at the time when I started like what therapy was. I didn't grow up hearing the word there, I didn't know what it was. So when I came there, we worked with adolescents and I worked at that time in a residential capacity. And so those kids received therapy. So that's what therapy was. And looking at what those therapists did, I was like, I wouldn't, oh, I don't want to be no therapist if that's what therapists do. So it was kind of like, yeah, I don't want to be a therapist, but I didn't realize how narrow my perception of that was. So I don't think I said I would never, but that's kind of this category, things I won't do. And Raquel has several things that she said she <laughs> wouldn't do that she's actually okay. doing right now. As we and speak. so I, I just want to lob the ball to you for you to just, what is that like to, to Ooh, realize that you are currently walking the very footsteps that at some point you said, Mm-mm, I'm not doing that. My goodness. Okay, so in addition to all the things that you said I do, I'm also a Black wellness mentor, right? So there's an organization called Black Mental Wellness um, Corporation, started by four Black women. They're amazing nationwide. They're great. So they have a mentor program. So I have two mentees. One is in St. Louis. One is in uh, Buffalo, New York. Great. They're in their MSW program. They have to graduate. And the first thing that the one supervisor, I mean, the one mentee told me was like, no, I don't ever feel like I ever want to do private practice. I don't know if I want to be clinical. I'm not sure if I want to, I, I think I would just support someone else's vision. I'm like, you know, I said the same thing. So there's a few things that I thought I would never do. I thought I would never be in private practice. That was, I was anti-private practice. I was, first of all, let me just say, I was anti, I, I did therapy before and I loved, I love assessment, diagnostic assessment, one and done. I see the person, we put some puzzle pieces together, come up with the diagnostic impression, recommend some treatment and gone about my business. I loved it. Cause I was burned out from therapy, from just working community mental health. I was burned out like full disclosure. I was burned out. I was done. And so I'm, like, I'm never going back to this and look at me now in private practice. I said, you know what? I'm gonna do private practice, but just a little part-time thing, a little side hustle. I'm gonna see if I like it. I don't need to do this full-time. Look at me now, full-time private practice. I don't need a space, office space. That feels like a whole lot of work in my own office space as we speak. Uh, just so many things. Uh, didn't ever want to work with kids. First job out of grad school, work with kids. Didn't want to work in uh, in the jail. Like, no, nah, I'm cool. That's not my that's not my vibe. Here we are, forensic evaluation. So I think when we put try to put ourselves in, in boxes, okay, the universe is going to tell you, uh, listen. I need you to expand this a little bit because the need is there. The gaps are there and you're here to fill the gap in whatever way that looks like. So it's just thinking back on, ooh, it's been a journey. But I think that um, looking back on it it, it, it was a necessary journey because it was internal work that I had to do, right? And so shout out to my therapist again, um, because she has helped me be able to unpack the the things that I thought I, I would never want to do and why I didn't think I want to do them. And it wasn't about my my ability to do them. It was like, you know, so internal work, self, self-talk. Can I do this? Are people going to hear me talk? Like speaking engagements, people ask me to come talk to whoever about whatever. And I'd be like, y'all want me to come talk? Who, don't, who wants to listen to me just talk? Go in here and just talk. My husband said, just go in there and talk your shit. So that's what I do. And people like it. So I just keep doing that. Like all of these things that I just thought I would never want to do, never would feel comfortable doing because I thought I was limited in the way in which I saw myself to just to be all the way a hundred. Um, because I thought I could only do one thing, kind of stay in that lane and it wasn't risky. I could work. I could go to work. I could punch a clock. 
I could do my job and I could go home and that's it. Um, but the universe told me that wasn't it. And so uh, figure it out. And so, you know, all types of stuff happens in that, in those moments in time. Um, but the people that I, you know, the people that I, that I, that I love, the people that love me, the, the village, the, the space, the, the environment, the, you know, whatever you want to call it, you too, Miss LaShonda. Um, all the people that I'm inspired by, like really like nudged me along to say, girl, you tripping the world is missing whatever it is that you are wanting to bring to it mm-hmm. and so you need to do that stop playing. so stop i'll stop i'll stop playing here we are here well we are. i appreciate your honesty and your transparency because before Ooh. we started i'm like all the things you said you wouldn't now all i right. always say i never i want to be no therapist and i definitely didn't want to be no entrepreneur nope. so and here we risky. are and risky it is risky And if you afraid to fail, why are you out here trying to take risks, right? And I think one of the key things that I want to share based on what I heard you say and what's been my experience is I, I want all of us to be curious with compassion about our own narratives because I, and Raquel, if I misspeak for you, you can definitely let me know. But as we talk about these evaluations of our limited beliefs and all the internal work we had to do to do it. That's not how it presented itself. It wasn't like you have a lot of internal work to do and this is a limited belief. No, no, no. no. You know what it sounds like? I don't even like that. Right. I don't want to do that. I'm cool. I, I like what I'm doing. Exactly. So the narrative doesn't pop neon lights like hey this is really your path but you have these limiting beliefs based on your relational and developmental trauma no (laughs) right it's It's not fully realized like that nah it's just like "Mm -mm, I don't even like that and because I say it all the time when you declare a thing to be true your brain's job is to filter incoming data in service of that narrative so Mm -hmm. when I looked at those therapists in this one setting and like oh I wouldn't want to do that then I started to find all the things I didn't like about what they were doing oh I could never do that oh no oh no my that just means my brain was doing its job and if I'm not critical in my own evaluation and examination of the thoughts that I think are mine, whether that's come from my past pain and hurt or the messages that the systems and society are giving me about what I can and can't do, should and shouldn't do, all of a sudden I am convinced that these are my own ideas when oftentimes they're not. And so the, the loose, I, I'm, I'm asking people that narrative, can you hold it loosely? Like, cup your hand enough so it doesn't just fall away but open your fingers enough that you have enough space to think about why do I really think this is not for me why do I really believe that this is for me can I be critical in my examination of the determinations I've made about what the future holds another thing is today what is it about today you know, I thought, ain't nobody trying to do this for the rest of my life. Who's talking about the rest of your life? Girl, <laughs> girl, no, for real. girl, because at 60, I'm going to be on the boat somewhere. Stop playing. I'm not 60 doing this girl, forever, Way y'all. before they like, <laughs> right. I appreciate y'all, but no, okay. not doing it. I, I will make a decision about tomorrow projecting it for the next 20 years. I used to, and that feels overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So I was afraid to move in certain directions because it felt like a lifelong commitment that I was making. Once I realized that I didn't have to make a lifetime commitment with the choice about tomorrow and that pivoting is a thing. If y'all see the first iteration of Labors of Love, it don't look like it looks right now. And I can't tell you what it's going to look like in 2023. And the good news is I don't have to. If I can just so much open. pressure, right? So much pressure. We put that on ourselves, though. Um, yeah, it's it's just that that self talk is is powerful. The first thing my therapist always asks me is, "Who told you that you couldn't do that?" Or if I say, "Anybody go on talk to me?" Who told you that? Who, who in your life did you feel like didn't want to talk to you? Or who in your life made you feel like your voice wasn't worthy? or had value I'm like oh here we go okay fine uh let's talk about it all right Uh, so then we get to all that so I think that being being cognizant of it where it comes from and then doing the work to change the narrative uh, unlearn that that hard wiring okay it's hard Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
it is hard, lifelong, day, moment by moment, unlearning of those negative thoughts um, because it's so much easier to fall into the negativity of it all. It's so much easier to be like, I ain't about to do all that. I'm just going to stay right here and it's comfortable and I feel okay about it. This this season, 2022, I'm jumping. We're going to see what happens. Two I feet, both. Two feet. Let's see. So through Let's all see. of this, through all that you hold, through all that you do and all the continual growth that you are doing to show up in the way that you show up what does self-care look like for Raquel um I'm gonna choke myself because so here's the thing it don't look like nothing right now I'm gonna be honest because I'm very busy and I have not been uh intentional about carving out time to take care of myself and I can be honest about that but when I was able to and it it is important and I'm going to you know self-care is mandatory something I tell my clients all the time you have to carve out time for yourself. And as therapists, it's so easy to tell people something that we don't live. So mm-hmm. um, I acknowledge that. But in this moment, my self-care, it's not, it's, it's not great. Not gonna lie. It's a lot going on. I'm just trying to get my footing. I feel like, but I think even when I, so let me just, let me think that all the way through. Even when I say my self-care isn't great, let me not minimize it because even me admitting that it's not great is a big thing for me. So I'm an avoider. I'm a minimizer. I'm a dismisser, if that's the word. Um, and so me even being able to say, you know, I need to take better care of myself is a huge deal for me. So me being intentional about the ways in which I'm not showing up for myself is the first step for me. Like that's huge. Like, so I can, I can, okay, shout out to therapy. Cause I can admit that. Um, and so I think when I am, when I do feel like I'm doing it the quote unquote right way, um, it looks like just being by myself. Like, you know, I have a husband, he's great. His name is Mike. Shout out to Mike. Give a shout out to my husband. He's great. Um, all my people's um X of five. And so I think that creating time for myself is very important. I do journal sometimes. Music is huge. I listen to music every single day, all day long. Um, and depending on what mood I'm in, it just depends on what kind of music I wanna I wanna listen to. That's super important for me. Um, traveling is important. I love that. I do want to take a solo trip at some point in my life um, to just kind of be able to just kind of see if I can. I know I can, but I just want to see. Um, so traveling is important for me. But even it's just, you know, when I used to work with kids, well, I still do sometimes, but when I used to work with kids, you know, primarily, it would be like, we have to have an arsenal of self-care tools, coping skills, because the kids would be like, I don't want to take a deep breath. I can't, I can't take a shower. You know, you go to children's hospital and no shade to them because I used to work there. We go to children's hospital to give you the list of hundred coping skills, like take a shower, take a bath, you know, draw a pump. You can't do that at school. You can't take a bath at school. So how do we figure out ways in which that we can create sort of a toolkit of things that we can do wherever we are? And I feel like that's super important. You have to have more than one, more than two, more than five, more than 10 really. So that anywhere you are, music, I think is probably the number one for me. Take care of myself by listening to music that feeds my soul. Or if I got to get crunk and get buck and feel like I got to like, you know, amp up. So I'm about to go do something. Okay, I got to listen to the real hood, whatever, whatever. Like, okay, I'm about to go into this meeting. Let me go in here and just get my mind right and just feel like I can go in here and talk my shit, whatever. So that's important for me. Um, what else do I do for self-care? Let me think. Um, I think that, oh, I go to therapy. <laughs> that is definitely part of my self-care. So I am doing self-care. I see her weekly. Okay. Talk to my, just talked to her this morning. Um, I see my therapist frequently. I show up as my authentic self in there. I remember like, so I saw her for a little bit, like around the time I was planning my wedding and then, um, I moved. So then I wasn't seeing her. And then after my mom passed, I got back into therapy with her. And I remember when I came back, she was like, you're cussing a lot more than usual. She's like, I feel like that's a good thing. She's very like positive. This this makes me feel like, you know, this helps me understand that you are feeling more comfortable. You're feeling more like you can be yourself. I'm like, you know what? You're right. Because I am kind of letting it fly here, ain't I? Because I feel like before I was very much like, I could be cussing for my therapist. She an old lady and she can't be, you know, no respect. But I'm like, I, it, it may be very like, she my Amy. Like I can't be, she old white lady. But still, like I can't be in her cussing. I was talking about old people. We don't cuss in front of adults. Like it's weird. In this phase of life, I cuss and just let it fly. So it's fine. And so I think going to therapy, that is so super intentional. And she called me out and she feel like I'm not, she's like, I don't want this to be another thing on your to-do list. I need you to be intentional about this. I'm like, oh, damn, you don't have to say it like that. You're right though. She know how I am when I get in my mode of just like, you know, dismissing and just kind of being internal and kind of, you know, curling up. She knows me very well at this point. So I think that going to therapy and being authentic in therapy is definitely a part of my self-care for sure. Um, And then being able to be authentic with my friends and family. 
I'm definitely, like I said, I'm a, I'm a minimizer. I'm a dismisser. I'm a, I'm cool. I'm good for me to be able to say, you know, after my mom passed and my grandma passed, they passed within three months of each other. People would ask me how I was doing. I'd be like, shitty. That was huge for me because I'm a, I'm fine. Everything's fine. I'm okay. Making it work. Like I'm just very, like, not just not showing up. Eventually I had to be like, I'm shitty. My mom and dad, both of them. Like, yeah, I don't feel good. I want to go home. I want to get to bed. Like I just had to be, you know, be mindful and be in touch with those feelings because they were valid. So I think emotional work is super important for me as far as self-care. Being able to ask for help is self-care for me because I'm definitely a person who don't like to ask for help. Um, and that's, you know, internal work that I'm doing. And, um, but just like, you know, physical things, I guess, like tangible things, music, for sure. I love music. I try to zone too much too, I try not to zone out too much on TV and stuff, but I'm definitely watching a few things right now that are, that are, that I watch a lot of serial killer things, which is weird because I work in forensic, but I don't know. I like it. <laughs> um, it's interesting to me. It's like, it. wow, people really uh, do this stuff in real life. Um, what else do I do? Eat. I love food, which is why I don't have a six pack. <laughs> I love food and I love working out sometimes. So that is like, you know, ebb and flow with the working out. That was definitely a thing that I did for self-care before the pandemic and then grief and loss and all these things that piled on. And I was like, oh, I don't feel like doing none of this. I'm trying to get back into it. It ebbs and flows even currently because as much as I love working out, love strength training, love throwing weight around, love seeing progress, the motivation to do it is very difficult. So, but that's, you know, internal work as well. Because when I when I am running on fumes, I don't have energy to work out. So that's more self-care for me as well. Like create the space so that you can, because you know, once you do it, you're going to feel good. So just do it. Yeah. That's so real. And what I what I love and crack up like the whole time you was talking. It's not great right now. And I'm like, so she's gonna, she gonna talk her herself through and then realize she's doing Thank all you. this stuff. Come on, Miss. You, you know, know what I'm saying? So, you know, you know, Thank like, you I'm for taking the ride with me. Like, oh, yeah, hey, I was a passenger <laughs> in the car and it was great. But I love the way that you did arrive at it because this is what so many people are saying. Oh, my self-care is not great right now. A lot of us are doing things on a regular daily basis that is nurturing, is discharge, is recharge, is self-care. We just haven't taken the time to slow down long enough to realize we're doing it. And so when people are, I need to improve my self-care, and then they start thinking about all the things to add on, I'm always like, pause, let's evaluate what you're already doing, right? Right. I think it's important. Like, I don't know if we got to this point last week, I think, where we looked in our pantry, in the refrigerator, and we like, oh, we need to do a big shop. Like, you know, like we had been, you, you get the stuff, but you know, when you run out of seasonings and oil, like you like how we, okay. Okay. So we got to go for real (laughs) before we decide, like, let's just go, let's take an inventory. What do we have? Right. What do we have so that we know that we don't have to get more of that? And then we can look at what don't we have and what we need to replenish. And I think that's a good way to look at self-care. You're not doing nothing. Right. Because you're functioning. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You might not be functioning to the degree that you feel like you should be or you want to, but you are functioning. So what's helping you function? And so you right. look at, okay, I am listening to me. I am doing this thing. Okay. I am doing that. Just being able to show up like for real, for real and not change my vocabulary that can be self-care so take an honest inventory like what am I doing now you know we are in that it could always be better and I'm like sometimes it is what it is but what are you doing right now and celebrate I I really 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 want to emphasize celebration as self-care so many of us were not celebrated um and therefore have built this um belief system and worldview that unless we have this big milestone thing that we're not worthy of celebration or some of us were overly celebrated for things we weren't even doing so now we feel like fraud the whole thing whatever your thing is can we just celebrate the here and now so as we get ready to close Raquel I want to celebrate you I want to celebrate the fact that you know you are doing so many of the things that you were called to do, even though those were things that were risky and challenging. And at some point you didn't think you would do them and they're not easy things. So it's not like, 
it's a walk in the park all day holding the spaces that you are. But I want to celebrate the fact that you are doing those things. And that my biggest celebration is that you are doing them as Raquel. No, <laughs> no version, no, no, no iteration, but like you for real, you, 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 you. And I absolutely love that. I draw inspiration from that, you know, and when I find myself sometimes like doing this seamless, unconscionable slip back into something like you're one of the people I think of and be like, no, <laughs> what were you, you don't have to, where you going? Cause you don't have to, you ain't and whoever to. falls in line are supposed to be there and who don't they just don't word that's it (laughs) Raquel is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners before we dip out anything we didn't talk about or anything you want to go back to Um, nothing I can think of I just want to end it by saying you're enough just as you are who you are how you are you are more than enough and whoever, whoever has a problem with that can go Mm-hmm. get right or get left as the old folks will say yeah <laughs> I love that Raquel I love you thank you I love you too don't make me cry we were doing so well <laughs> we were doing so well I appreciate you taking the time out to just be here with me converse with me and give my listeners a whole dose of realness so thank you <laughs> I thank you for having me you were just so dope and the work that you do in the world and how you show up for folks you know, you had that light anyway, which I peeped when we worked together. I was like, and especially when you were in school, you're like, yeah, I'm going to school to be a counselor. I'm like, oh, this is perfect. In my mind, I'm like, she's going to be great. Um, not knowing all the challenges that you were working through in those moments, right? We were both planning our wedding around the same time. We were both like, girl, this is some bull. We ready to, uh, let's elope because this is dumb. Um, all those things because it's stressful, okay? And I think that just remembering who who you were and who you are now. It's just like the journey has just been so phenomenal to watch, so inspirational to watch. When I think about entrepreneurship, when I think about taking those next steps and, and it being scary, I'm like, but Alashanta out here doing all the things, okay? She's talking to everybody. Anytime I see email in your picture, I'm like, I'll text you every time. Like I see you a screenshot. I say, girl, look at, my, look at my friend. Look at my girl. Look at her. This would be a screenshot. This came up in my email this box. This came up in my email this today. To I show you, I see you. <laughs> Every time I see, I'm like, oh, there she goes. Doing the things. You are, you are, you are, I mean, my organization's called Be the Light, but you are definitely a light hmm. for sure. And I appreciate you so much for having me and creating this platform for folks to come in here and talk about shit. I love it. it. I'll come back anytime. Uh-huh. And I will have you back. I thank you Please. so much for being here. I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who provides all the music for the Labors of Love podcast, to my producer, Jay Sugg of Instant Classic Media. And of course, you, my listeners, y'all know I love you and I do not take it for granted that you tune in. If you want to get in touch with me, reach me at www.thelaborsoflove.com. Don't forget, if you have suggestions for guests or content, there is a form there on the Welcome page just scroll on down and drop a line let me know we're on all the major social media outlets y'all head over to tiktok and give me a follow i'll be putting out videos a couple times a week don't forget youtube where i have all of the therapy thursday videos and just other random videos that i drop and of course if you have not given me that five star rating what are you waiting for go ahead and give me that rating write a review share the podcast with your friends and loved ones until we connect again you all be well